0: The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the Ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Last week I looked at 2nd Samuel chapter 1 and uh, the topic was on uh, David's lament for the death of Saul and his son Jonathan and uh, there was just a lot that I wanted to cover in that message that I felt like it was just too much to do in a single message. And so, um, I know you guys are going, oh, there he goes again. But uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna spend one more week on the topic before moving on, okay? Because I, I just feel like there's a lot to say on this whole idea of lament in the Bible. And so, uh, for today's message, we're gonna look, the title of it is the, is the Journey of Lament. And what we're gonna do is look at various Psalms of David to try to uh, paint a fuller picture of what lament meant in David's life and what it ought to mean for us as well, okay uh, so let's uh, let's pray and then we'll we'll get into the word. God, we pray that you would open our eyes to this rich tradition of lament in your word and open our eyes to see a God who invites our lament to express some of the most honest and deeply felt Uh, Pains and wounds that we carry within our heart and to bring them to you knowing that we will not be rejected for that honesty but that we be received by you with grace and with mercy. And so we pray that you would minister to us through the work of your spirit to open our eyes to see the truth that is before us in these words of scripture that we would live and surrender to that truth and to embrace it and to live in the fullness of the promise of that truth in each of our lives. And so we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. Before we get into it, let me also say a brief, quick announcement that we've added those keynote presentations that we talked about a few weeks back uh, to all the messages in the After God's Heart series. And so, you know, I kind of did a very brief uh, survey to see if you guys wanted those notes. And so... Uh, Instead of posting my actual sermon notes and the keynotes, we decided for now that we'll just include the keynotes. And so if you look there, if you click on, go to the ICC website and then go to media and then sermons, uh, you'll see the whole list of the After God's Heart series there as the default uh, page. And then you'll now see this little download file link there. And if you click it, you can download the PDFs. And basically, it's what you're going to get when you download that is exactly what you see every week in these slideshows. All the quotes, uh, the key teaching points, the Bible verses, as well as any images that we use uh, in the message. And so you can feel free to access that in PDF format. Uh, I don't think... I don't, we haven't really talked about this, but I don't think we're going to go retroactively and do it to all the previous series. But at least going forward to all of the future series that we'll cover, we'll do our best to continue this uh, practice of giving you the keynote files as well. Okay, all right. Um, Sungchan Ra is a professor at North Park University, that's uh, right here in Chicago, and um, he shares of the struggle that he had with his father all of his life. Um, his father had basically abandoned the family when he was really young and left the family in total financial hardship. And so his mother had to work long hours picking up two jobs in order to support the children. And so what Sunchan Chan Ra says is that it felt not only like he lost his father but it felt like he lost both parents when his father abandoned the family. And so, losing his mother as well to those two jobs even deepened the anger and resentment that Ra felt toward his father. Um, and then, after decades of abandonment in his 70s, totally destitute, his father came back home to the family. And to his shock, his mother received him graciously back like a prodigal who had come home. But it wasn't so easy for Ra to show mercy to his father. And not long after his dad returned home, his father suffered a stroke and was eventually transferred from the hospital to hospice where he lingered for a month in this debilitated state. And Chan Ra writes of those final days of his father. Not only had he returned after years away, but also he had returned just in time to saddle my mom with the medical bills and to further burden his family. I went back to Massachusetts but returned several weeks later when I was told that he might not have long to live. By this point, my anger had amplified along with his mounting medical bills. I went to his bedside but did not give thought to the reality of his imminent death. Later that evening, I found myself in the family waiting room listening to my mom and my sisters as they began to talk in detail about the funeral arrangements, an event that would happen in just a few more days. It finally hit me with full force that my dad was really going to die. I left the waiting room, rushed over to my father's room, and kicked out my nieces and nephews. Alone with my dad, I sat by his bed and clasped his hand in mine. Through tears and with a tight grip on his hand, I offered him my complete forgiveness. I asked for his forgiveness for the years of bitterness I had harbored against him. Through his tears and his tightening grip, we were reconciled just hours before his death. The reconciliation that occurred with my father on his deathbed required an important realization on my part. My father was dying, and this could be my last chance to talk to him. Our history, a history of loss and pain, took on added meaning when I acknowledged the reality of his death. That reality changed the equation. The details may not be the same, but maybe you can identify with the deep pain that Ra experienced with the relationship with his father. I think his story is just one example of the many stories that fill our world, experiences of pain and loss because of the brokenness and sinfulness of the world. And I think this is why lament is so important in our faith. And what if I were to ask you this question? What are the three most painful experiences in your past? Would you be able to name them readily? How do those experiences shape you to this very day? What is the shadow that those experiences have cast over your life? And then what if I were to ask you, How has your faith played a role in processing that pain? Has it at all? In essence, I think what I'm really asking you this morning is, uh, do you know how to lament in the Lord? A lament is a cry to God in response to the pain and suffering and loss that we experience in our broken world. And David wrote more laments in the Bible than anyone else. That's because despite being God's anointed one, beyond the fact that he was favored by God, in fact, despite the fact that he was favored by God, David experienced so much pain and loss in his life. Last week, we looked at the lament that David wrote in honor of Saul and his son Jonathan. And what was so shocking about that lament is the genuine sense of grief and pain that David felt toward Saul's death. Even though Saul was the very one who drove him into the wilderness, hunting him down like an animal for over a decade. And I'm going to argue that David did not reach that enlightened perspective about Saul overnight. In fact, that lament, I would argue, was the end product of over 10 years of David struggling with Saul in the wilderness. And I'm going to argue, actually, ultimately struggling with God in that same wilderness. With all of the chaos and confusion and everything, you see the process that David had to go through to reach that point of that lament in 2 Samuel chapter 1. As he, in the earlier Psalms that come from that wilderness time, expressed some deep emotions of self-pity for all the injustices that he had to struggle with in the wilderness, wrestling with feelings of betrayal and abandonment. And so what this lament in 2 Samuel chapter 1 represents is David finally finding peace with Saul at the end of it all. And that grew from a faith that he had in God to embrace that wilderness chapter of his life as something God ordained something that God willed for him, and so he could actually mourn the death of the very one that was trying to kill him. It's interesting that before he sings his lament, he gives this command to all of Judah. In 2 Samuel 1, 17 to 18, it says, and David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son, and he said, it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. Now, we don't even know what this book of Jashar is because it's not in existence anymore. But what, is it, what David basically says, in the midst of this war with the Philistines and in the midst of a civil war that has just broken out between the house of Saul and the house of David, David commands the entire nation to hit the pause button and spend a season in lamentation, mourning the death of Saul, And he specifically said, teach this song of lament to the people of Judah. Learn this lament so that you can learn how to lament. And I think that's a message for us in this day because I think truthfully, in the modern church today, we have lost the practice of lament. I said this last week. Over 70%, anywhere, it sort of depends on Which data you look at, but anywhere from between 50 to 70% of the Psalms are laments, okay? Uh, But that's not true of modern worship songs today. I don't know if you're familiar with the CCLI, it's basically the Copyright and Licensing Organization for Christian Worship Songs. And if you look a few years back at the CCLI's top 100 most popular songs in the church in America, what you discover is that only five of them could even be closely remotely called laments, okay? Five out of 100, and even those five are a bit of a stretch, okay? So think about that for a minute. 70% of the Psalms are laments, while only 5% of modern Christian worship songs are laments. In other words, I think what that reveals is that the modern church in America has no place in its worship for lament. And I think we couch it in faith terms, right? Like, we have Jesus, why do we need to lament? We should be happy, we have faith, we have God. What is there to be sad about? (laughs) You should be happy, I should be happy. And there's some truth to that, But I don't think it's the full truth, is it? And so today, I want to look a little more in detail at the different stages of lament that we see in the laments of David, what David's laments can teach us about the actual process of lament and grieving. And so the three stages that I'm going to unpack for you are these. First one is that we need to honestly acknowledge and express our emotions before God. And then the second one is seek God's understanding and help. And then the third stage of lament that we'll unpack is trusting in God's goodness despite our present circumstances. I kind of alluded to this last week, but I, I think there are just so many losses that we experience living through this life. Whether it's death of a loved one or death of a dream Can we get to that slide? (laughs) Um, Broken friendships. uh, Infertility. uh, Struggles with injustice. um, The loss of health as we age. Or even just frankly entering into new seasons in our life. And basically you... You cannot go through life without experiencing loss. And so how we deal with this loss, how we deal with our pain becomes so vital to what is ultimately going to come of our faith in God. You know, that last one on this list I think is particularly relevant here is entering a new season of life. Because quite often we view change as positive. And it can be positive, but one of the things that can really sneak up on us is even change that is overall for the positive often carries with it a certain element of sadness and of loss. Maybe you family relocated to an entirely new part of the country because of a better career opportunity. And that's exciting, that's a good thing. But in that relocation, there is much that you lose, isn't there? You can celebrate the birth of your first child, and that's a wonderful thing again, a new life in the family. But it also represents the end of a season in your marriage, doesn't it? When you and your spouse will no longer have the joy of that uninterrupted intimacy anymore for the rest of your life until you become empty nesters, right? And by then, you're too old to really care, right? No, no, just kidding. Uh, That's not true. That's not true. (laughs) Betty and I are very much looking forward to that. Um, But even positive change often comes with it, a lament, a grieving of what we lose, even in the joy of what we gain. Anatole France says this, All changes, even the most longed for, have their melancholy. For what we leave behind is part of ourselves. We must die to one life before we can enter into another. And so sometimes in our rush to move on to the new thing, we neglect the importance of grieving the loss that those changes have represented in our life, of the things that we had to give up in order to gain those new things. Well, Let's walk through these stages and kind of unpack them a bit and see what the picture of lamentation really looks like in the life of a Christian. The first is, starting point of lamentation is to honestly acknowledge and express our emotions to God. Now, I got to kind of unpack this a little because it's a, it's a little bit nuanced here, okay? In psychological circles, there is a school of thought that argues That all emotions, no matter what they may be, are neither right nor wrong. They just are. In other words, there's a certain self-validating aspect to emotions that we just have to accept. And so in light of that belief, we should never judge someone for their emotions. Only validate them, whatever they are. And I think this, this belief comes from the fear that once you start judging somebody for their emotions as being either right or wrong, then what you end up doing is making it impossible for a person to deal openly and honestly with those emotions, right? Because if you feel that some of your emotions are wrong, then you're more likely to sort of stuff them inside where they can never get out. Out of that guilt or the shame of the feelings that you have. And let's be honest, that's probably how many of us operate, right? When you feel those negative emotions like anger or fear or whatever else welling up in you, maybe there is this defense mechanism that causes you to shut it down because you don't want to expose it, to let it be revealed. But I'm going to argue that that view of emotions is not really biblical. Okay. The problem with this view of emotions is that it contradicts the basic teaching of the Bible in terms of our sinfulness. Because the Bible teaches that every aspect of our personality has been tainted by sin. Whether it's our actions or our thoughts or our will or our desires, and yes, even our emotions are tainted by sin. And so our emotions are not free from the effects of sin but we still express them to God because they honestly reveal the condition of our heart, okay? Meaning this. We don't express our angry feelings before God because our anger is necessarily justified, but because we are simply confessing what is honestly going on inside of us. And that is the starting point of healing. Think of it this way. A doctor cannot make the right diagnosis or give you the right treatment if you aren't honest with the symptoms that you're suffering from when you go to talk with the doctor, right? I mean, if you are having gassy, bloody diarrhea, and I bet you you never heard that phrase in a church before, right? (laughs) But if you are having this kind of diarrhea, but you are too ashamed to let the doctor know that that's what you're suffering from, and instead you tell him, oh, it's uh, my neck hurts. (laughs) You will probably leave his office with a prescription for some muscle relaxers and painkillers while your intestinal infection only gets worse. In other words, how can we be healed from what we cannot acknowledge as the true struggle of our hearts. If we deny it and reject it and say, no, no, I'm okay, I'm fine, really, I'm okay. There's nothing going on. Everything is good. It's all good. Then it's as if we haven't even taken the first steps toward God to allow him to do the work that he needs to do with our broken heart. I think David stands for us as an exemplar of what it means to come honestly with the emotions that we feel inside of us, especially the negative ones. Psalm 142, verse one to two. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. It's interesting that in the introduction to the psalm, it says a maskil of David when he was in the cave. And when I read that, I wondered, which of the many caves that he lived in is this talking about? Because he lived for a decade in caves. And it's just, what David is saying is, I don't hide anything from God. I pour out my complaints to him and let him know how I'm really feeling inside. Psalm 69 starts with this Introduction to the psalm. To the choir master, according to lilies of David. Now, what does according to lilies mean? Most Bible scholars think it's probably referring to a musical score that's entitled lilies, which makes it sound really pleasant, right? Like we're going to get a love song. Oh, yes, play it to the tune of lilies. Until you hear the lyrics, (laughs) And then these lyrics come in. I'm going to read it to you in the message paraphrase that Eugene Peterson wrote because I think it just captures the emotion of David so vividly. Going into verse 1 to verse 4, it says, God, God, save me. I'm in over my head. Quicksand under me, swamp water over me. I'm going down for the third time. I'm hoarse from calling for help, bleary-eyed from searching the sky for God. I've got more enemies than hairs on my head. Sneaks and liars are out to knife me in the back. What I never stole must I now give back. David is expressing so many emotions in just these four verses, isn't he? Despair, terror, discouragement, hopelessness, self-pity, indignation, injustice. Psalm 109, verse 1 to 6. Be not silent, O God, of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer, so they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. Appoint a wicked man against them. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. And then for verses 7 to 15, again, I want to read it in the message translation so you get the full force of the emotional aspect of this. It goes on in verse 7, it says, When he's judged, let the verdict be guilty. And when he prays, let his prayer turn to sin. Give him a short life and give his job to somebody else. Make orphans of his children. Dress his wife in widow's weeds. Turn his children into begging street urchins. evicted from their homes homeless may the bank foreclose and wipe him out and strangers like vultures pick him clean may there be no one around to help him out no one willing to give his orphans a break chop down his family tree so that nobody even remembers his name but erect a memorial to the sin of his father and make sure his mother's name is there too Their sins recorded forever before God. But they themselves sunk in oblivion. Maybe Juno could write some music to this song (laughs) so that we could all sing this next Sunday. What a far cry from Jesus' command to love our enemies, right? Right? If you remember from the previous messages in in this Life of David series, we saw how this recurring question shows up out of David's lips. From the very start of his wilderness years to the very end, he keeps saying this question, what have I done to deserve this, right? What did I do to deserve all of this garbage that keeps happening in my life? Whether it was Saul trying repeatedly to kill him without cause, Or the very people, the the Ziphites, whom he have helped, turning him in to Saul and betraying him. Or Nabal, refusing even the smallest act of kindness in response to everything David did for him. All of these injustices that David suffered for years in that wilderness, and here you see him in full rage mode full anger mode, and he says, kill them all, God. Kill them all. Kill their children. Make widows of their wives. I don't even just wipe them out from this face of this earth. Yale professor uh, Nicholas uh, Waltersdorf um, lost his son, Eric. Eric at the age of 25, uh, when he died in a mountain climbing accident in Austria. He was there working on his doctorate, and he decided one day just to sort of climb this mountain on his own. And he ended up losing his foothold, and he uh, plunged many feet to his death. And in his book, Lament for for a Son, he writes with such raw honesty about the agonizing sorrow and grief that he felt for years after his son's death. And he says this, even though, even though I still believed in the gospel, there was a pain in his loss, in this loss, that I just could not fathom. Walter Stove writes, Elements of the gospel which I had always thought would console did not. They did something else, something important, but not that. It did not console me to be reminded of the hope of resurrection. If I had forgotten that hope, then it would indeed have brought light into my life to be reminded of it. But I did not think of death as a bottomless pit. I did not grieve as one who has no hope. Yet Eric is gone. Here and now he is gone now I cannot talk with him now I cannot see him now I cannot hug him now I cannot hear of his plans for the future that is my sorrow a friend said remember he's in good hands I was deeply moved but that reality does not put Eric back in my hands now that's my grief for that grief what consolation can there be other than having him back nothing fills the void of his absence. He is not replaceable. We cannot go out and get another just like him. There's a hole in the world now. In the place where he was, there's now just nothing. Only a hole remains, a void, a gap, never to be filled. With the death of his son, Waltersdorf has been thrust into a harrowing journey in a foreign land where nothing feels familiar anymore. Nothing feels predictable or sure to him anymore. Let me say this. It's an amazing testimony when somebody could say God is good in the face of your greatest pain and loss. And by God's grace, he gives us sometimes that faith to make that confession and really mean it. But what I'm going to argue is this, that more often than not, that kind of confession can only come at the end of a long journey of lament, after a long struggle with God to understand his ways, and to make sense of what seems absolutely senseless in our life. And we have to be careful not to undercut that journey and to try to take shortcuts and act like we have that faith when it really may not be there. And so secondly, as our heart is revealed through our emotions, The next step of lament is to seek God's understanding and help. I said this last week. We cannot change our emotions through sheer willpower. It doesn't work that way. If you're angry, you cannot will yourself to stop being angry. I mean, you might be able to do it in the short-term perspective, but not in the long view. If you're afraid, you cannot will yourself to just stop being afraid, can you? So the point is this. Rather than trying to change our emotions directly, we need to ask God to deal with the underlying beliefs that are driving those emotions. I think that is the important process of lament. In other words, what do your emotions reveal about what you really believe about life and God and others and yourself? Maybe it reveals that you doubt whether God really is with you or whether he cares about you. Maybe your emotions reveal that you believe that you are a totally innocent victim in everything while everyone around you is just evil. Maybe your emotions reveal that you have lost hope in tomorrow, that tomorrow could be better than it is today. Dan Allender and Tremper Longman said this, rather than focusing on trying to change our emotions, we are wiser first to listen to them. They are a voice that can tell us how we are dealing with a fallen world, hurtful people, and a quizzical God who seldom seems to be or do what we expect of him. Although emotions are generally aroused in a human context, they always reveal something about how we are dealing with God. What Allender and Longman are pointing out is that on the surface, most of our negative emotions are triggered by conflict with other people. But ultimately, what those emotions are pointing to is not so much our struggle with other people as it is our struggle with God. Is God, good. Is he just? Does he really love me? Do I even matter to him? Listen to how David deals with the struggles of his heart in lamentation. Psalm 7, verse 1 to 5. O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest like a lion, they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friends with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. Listen to it in the message translation. God, God, I am running to you for dear life. The chase is wild. If they catch me, I am finished ripped to shreds by foes fierce as lions, dragged into the forest and left unlooked for, unremembered. God, if I've done what they say, betrayed my friends, ripped off my enemies, if my hands are really that dirty, let them get me, walk all over me, leave me flat on my face in the dirt. What I see in these words is that first, David deals with his fears and insecurities by asking God to be the one who saves him, to be his deliverer. But also notice that, God, that David is also, also asking God in the second part of this psalm to be the judge of his own heart. Is there really any evil in me that I am being blind to? Am I really as innocent as I think I am in all of this? This is the same prayer that David offers in Psalm 139 as well, which is also a lament. In verses 21 to 24, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. But then David says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting in other words this is david's prayer in the midst of his lament is am i really justified in this hatred that i have toward these people who are attacking me is this really righteous anger i don't know god so test my heart and do the work in my heart that you need to do in me first and not those other people that is such a vital part of lament Is God reveal what you need to reveal that my emotions are exposing in me about what's going on in my own heart? And then there is this undeniable asking for God's help. Psalm 35, verse 22 to 24. You have seen, O Lord, be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and arouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness and let them not rejoice over me. In his anger against the injustice that is being done to him, and his fear that, frankly, God has withdrawn his presence, David's response is to ask God, don't be silent. Don't pull away from me, God, and you be my vindicator. Rather than expressing his emotions against the people who are hurting him, in other words, he takes it to God in prayer. And he says, God, you do this for me. Psalm 61, verse 1 to 3. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth, I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. David, overwhelmed by the emotion of fear, feeling that there is nothing that he could call a safe place anymore, turns to God in his response, and he says, you be my strong tower. You be that place of final refuge where I can make my last defense against my enemies. You fight my battles for me when I feel overwhelmed with fear. I want to say this. I think our knowledge of God is really shallow when life is easy and everything goes according to our plans and our expectations. You know, when, when you kind of live a life like that, where everything kind of goes so well and easy for you, then it really begins to raise that question, what do we really mean when we say God is good? Is he good because life is good? Because in truth, it's hard to separate those two, right? God is good because my life is good. God is faithful because good things happen to me. And he answers prayer. It's not until you experience suffering and loss that we're really forced to ask ourselves what we really mean when we say God is good. Waltersdorf, again, lamenting the death of his son, writes these words: "I have no explanation. I can do nothing else than endure in the face of this deepest and most painful of mysteries. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and resurrector of Jesus Christ. I also believe that my son's life was cut off in its prime. I cannot fit these pieces together. I am at a loss. To the most agonized question I have ever asked, I do not know the answer. I do not know why God would watch him fall. I do not know why God would watch me wounded. I cannot even guess. Faith endures but my address to God is uncomfortably, perplexingly altered. It's off target, qualified. I want to ask for Eric back, but I can't. So I aim around the bullseye. I want to ask that God protect the members of my family, but I asked that for Eric. I must explore the lament as a mode for my address to God. Can you see the disorientation that Waltersdorf is going through at the bereavement of his son? He is struggling to find his way back to the truth that at one time in his life seemed so obvious before the death of his son. But in light of his son's death, he's not even sure how he's supposed to pray anymore says does it make sense for me to pray for the protection of the surviving members of my family for my four other children or three other children when that prayer didn't seem to matter for my son and so Walter Storff is wrestling with this what can I ask of God what can I expect from him After a long journey of searching for answers, Waltersdorf will find himself in the place of trusting in God's goodness and love once again. But it would be inaccurate to say that what Waltersdorf has in essence done is just found his way back to the place where he started because he doesn't. His understanding of God's goodness was so much more deeply enlarged by his suffering than before his son died. And that leads me to the last stage of lament, which is this. Lament brings us lastly to the place of faith, trusting in God in spite of our present circumstances. In other words, in suffering and loss, God invites us to the deepest levels of trust in him, Trust rooted totally in who he is and not dependent on our circumstances. This is the place of trust and confidence in God found at the end of so many of David's laments. Let me just give you a few examples of that. Psalm 54 verse 4. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. Psalm 56 verse 4. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust and am not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Psalm 59, verse 9 to 10. Oh, my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O God, are my fortress. My God, in his steadfast love, will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. And lastly, Psalm 71, verse 20. You who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. I particularly like this last one because what David is saying is really astounding. David acknowledges God's sovereign hand in his suffering. He says, God, I know that you allowed these things to happen in my life. But even so, I have total confidence that you are still for me and that you are good to me. And in that faith, I will keep looking to you even though you have brought about these afflictions. The essence of man-made religion is to try to manipulate God through our acts of devotion. If we faithfully do the things that God wants, then he will give us the things we want. If you keep sexually pure, then God will give you the perfect soulmate in marriage. If you faithfully attend church every Sunday, God will protect your kids. If you just pray long and hard enough, God will eventually give you what you ask. really? Is that how life works? Through lament, we come to realize that God is not someone who can be manipulated, but one to whom we must surrender ourselves without conditions. True, relationship is, true religion is a relationship with God, trusting that he loves us, no matter what circumstances we face in life. And in that faith, we can ask God for help in our times of trouble. We ought to ask him for help. We ought to claim his promises in our moments of need. But we do so with the humility that acknowledges his control and authority over all things. That is the wisdom of lament. Through lament, we learn to surrender the conditions that we often place on God, the expectations that He must meet in order for Him to prove Himself to us. Instead, we adopt a posture of trust, even in the face of our greatest pain and loss, believing that God, nevertheless, is always good to us. I'm going to argue that the confidence for this trust can only come from the cross of Christ. Because in the cross is the most powerful demonstration of God's love and commitment to us. Walter Storff's journey of lament would bring his steps to the foot of the cross. This is what he writes. How is faith to endure, O God, when you allow all the scraping and tearing on us? You have allowed rivers of blood to flow, mountains of suffering to pile up, sobs to become humanity's song, all without lifting a finger that we could see. You have allowed bonds of love beyond number to be painfully snapped, If you have not abandoned us, explain yourself. We strain to hear, but instead of hearing an answer, we catch sight of God himself, scraped and torn. Through our tears, we see the tears of God. A new and more disturbing question now arises. Why do you permit yourself to suffer, O God? I read his entire book this last week. And when I got to this line, it stopped me dead in my tracks. And it brought me to tears when Walter Storff asks this question of God. It's one thing for us to try to make sense of our suffering. But why do you permit yourself to suffer God? when you have all control and all power over everything, why do you suffer with us in our suffering? God is not only the God of the sufferers, but the God who suffers. The pain and fallenness of humanity have entered into his heart. Through the prism of my tears, I have seen a suffering God. And great mystery to redeem our brokenness and lovelessness. The God who suffers with us did not strike some mighty blow of power but sent his beloved son to suffer like us through his suffering to redeem us from suffering and evil. Instead of explaining our suffering, God shares it. Put your hands into my wounds, says the risen Jesus to Thomas, and you will know who I am. The wounds of Christ are his identity. They tell us who he is. He did not lose them. They went down into the grave with him and they came up with him, visible, tangible, palpable. Rising did not remove them. He who broke the bonds of death kept his wounds. Let's pray. You know, uh, as your pastor, I would be lying to you if I said that I understood all the different pains and sorrows that you experience in your life because I don't. I think if I'm really honest with myself, I think I've had a pretty good life. I have not known the kind of suffering that I know many of you in this room have experienced. My parents were actually very good to me and I'm so thankful for the parents I had. and I, There haven't been a whole lot of loved ones that have passed away in my life. My health is relatively good. I don't have much to complain about. I can't say that I understand your pain, but I want to say this. We worship a God who understands our suffering because he entered into our suffering and knows firsthand what we're going through. All true lament ends at the cross. And so as we think about the pains and the loss and the grieving that we go through in this life. What we're invited to is to reach that place of faith where we see a Savior crucified on a cross. And on that cross becomes the greatest demonstration of His unconditional love for you and me. We don't get the answers to the deepest questions of life. But more than answers to those mysteries, what God gives us is son, that God is good. And in Jesus Christ, we have all that we need to know that God is good and he is for us. As amazing and as perplexing as it is to understand, the God of this universe who held all power and authority in his hand would become a man of sorrows. And walk this world bearing the wounds that we bear upon his own body. To experience our suffering firsthand. To say, I know everything that you're going through. Nobody else may understand the pain in your heart. But I know what you went through and what you're going through. That is the final place of lament, is to come to that place of the cross find at that cross a Savior who has died for us and loves us. We just pray for a few minutes in response to that truth, and our worship team will come and lead us in a time of response.